Hello and welcome to Coffee Meet with Algamy Consulting with me, your host, Chris New. Today's podcast is the second in our third series of podcasts titled Optimism with Caution. As always, we aim to provide insight from the key players of the wealth and asset management industry on what it means to run and operate an investment management business as the industry looks forward to refocusing on a post-COVID world while also adapting to a post-Brexit reality. Our first theme in this series, we're looking at ESG. Over the last few years, in addition to creating ESG-oriented products, the wealth and asset management industry has embraced a number of stakeholder inclusion measures of diversity, equality, gender pay gap, and many more. Today, the city's geostrategic position has changed and its regulatory framework is under debate. In this context, will the WAM industry be able to continue developing a purpose-driven and sustainable corporate model? Where do we stand today? And what else is planned in practice and from a regulatory perspective? We are once again very lucky to be joined by two fantastic guests over Zoom. My first guest is Mary McLeod. Uh, Mary is a member of the Women's Business Council, has an incredibly varied career as a former Conservative MP, headhunter, special advisor, consultant, and even the CEO in financial services, as well as perhaps most interesting, is advising Her Majesty the Queen. My second guest, I'm very lucky to be joined from Dublin by Adrian Whelan. Adrian is SVP of Regulatory Intelligence at Brown Brothers Harriman. He's responsible for articulating the impact of regulatory change on asset managers and the industry in which they operate. Before we uh, dive into the topic, if you've listened to my podcast before, I normally have a, a fun question to help you uh, keep thinking about two things at once. What is it that you look back on in your working life that you think, oh my goodness, how did that ever happen? And maybe with amused attachment rather than something uh, traumatic, what's changed in the working practice uh, since you started that you uh, good to see the back of? Before we uh, also dive into the ESG, maybe... Um, you could give us a little potted elevator pitch on your careers and how you got into the, the regulatory space or, in your case, your various careers. So maybe, Mary, we start off with you. Uh, talk us through uh, your career and how you got to where you are today. Certainly. Thanks, Chris. And people, purpose and impact have been sort of at the heart of what I've been doing throughout my career. So whether it was the human performance consulting and organisational consulting I did at the start with Accenture to then moving on to trying to improve investment banking operations. Um, but at the same time, I was hand in hand as a different part of my life looking at politics one of the first things I did was help with the Northern Ireland peace process in the mid-90s and it just struck me at the time that yes you absolutely can use the same skills and actually business and commercial skills are really useful to take into political environment where it is about um, get really understanding the issue getting the right people around the table who can make decisions about what change you want to drive through and how you can actually do it and then becoming a member of parliament and an advisor to ministers. And I'd stood first back in 97, but eventually got in in 2010 and then lost my seat in 2015. So that's about being fired on national television. Yeah. <laughs> which I wouldn't necessarily want to repeat. But really, it was all about how do I make a difference to the clients I work with? How do I really improve the businesses that I'm trying to transform? How can I really make a difference to, yes, 
the businesses, but how can I make a contribution to the wider community at large? So whether that is locally, nationally, internationally, and that's why I've worked on the set up the Women in Equality Select Forum um, with an inquiry in the UK government um, on the Women's Business Council and the G20 Empower Forum, which is about the economic empowerment of women uh, around the world. And then as a headhunter, that, that being that advisor on leadership and saying what, what are the right leaders that we need in every single sector for the uncertain um, times that we live in right now. So it has been a, a, a varied career, but yeah. I'm very passionate about driving change, shifting the dial and ideally moving at speed. Fascinating. I think we could have a whole podcast on your career. Thank you. Adrian, your time, how do you follow that? My journey is probably a little bit more straight lines, but it has a, a few similarities. Actually, interestingly, I hadn't a clue. I didn't have a plan. I got my first real job post-college, and, and people listen, and I'll age myself here, from an advertisement in a newspaper. I had a business degree. I saw an ad for a company I'd never heard of with an acronym called PFPC in Dublin, International Funds. There might have been a reference to Wall Street. I thought that was cool, right? So yeah. that was always kind of in my head. It turned out that they worked in international funds. But again, I grew a career with Brown Brothers Harriman. I worked with JP Morgan, some of these um, universal banks. But so I've been in and around regulation. And the funny thing is people think, oh, you must love regulation. I have a big passion for it. I really, really don't. But what it does do is that regulation and legislation and law, the boring stuff is what really makes change and the cool stuff happen. So again, that's been an interest of mine. While you are involved in regulation, the spectrum of regulation in asset management and banking is so broad that it allows you to talk about demographic shifts, political change, ESG, diversity and inclusion. And as we talk about sustainability of our industry or our place in the world, I think we actually owe it on ourselves now to explain it and be confident and not ashamed that we work in an industry that ultimately is there to serve the people, as I call it in my real life, mm. to look after their long-term savings, their pensions. It's particularly talk about regulation and the fact that I think even within the industry, people see it as a, a dry topic. I think if people engage further down the supply chain on that, they'd realise, as you say, it's it's about affecting change for, for real people. To put in just on that, so use its regime for mm. funds actually has been a huge driver of my own career and of Ireland as a funds domicile and as Europe as a growth engine. That brings us to the topic and we're talking about a regulatory framework for ESG and one of the things that I wanted to touch on is really the focus of this discussion which is ESG is a very broad topic, environmental, social and governance. Can you quickly explain what you see as social and governance? I think environmental and climate change is very well documented but social and governance, what, what does that mean? Is it linked to the E? in ESG and if so or if not is it standalone and what is the regulatory framework that is going to support that? Yeah and it's a good point so the terminology is really interesting so the E, the S and the G uh, if you look at the European rule set at the moment they don't look at those separately they look for you to under the term of sustainability to aggregate them but mm. a lot of people just intuitively look at the E, the S and the G in silos and again you've quite correctly pointed out that the huge amount of focus has been on the first letter, the E, and not many people have got to the S and the G. The European uh, regulation that's trying to drive this actually recognises this um, kind of misunderstood concept. So there's a thing called the taxonomy, which is basically a classification and definition system. 
because we need to get a common vernacular. So in essence, in asset management, wealth management and banking, when you talk about the S and the G, you're really talking on the S about things like inclusion, like DNI practices, like your place in the world and your interactions with your supply chain, your stakeholders and your community. So again, non-financial measures primarily about how you interact with society. And that can be your supply chain and vendor management and procurement process. That can be how you treat your employees, again, around welfare, health and well-being, and then diversity in terms of it could be gender pay gap, it could be women on the boards, it could be racial, Black Lives Matter. That's all in that S. And then the G, actually, the G is one thing that really interests me. Without G, which is governance, you can't really execute a plan on E and S. So the G is as important as any other, but I, I think it's the most underserved, again, silo of the ESG acronym. And G means from top down, your board governance, how it's constructed, how it actually operates, but it can go into how you are adhering to compliance elements. It's cybersecurity. Do our customers have trust in this digitized environment that their details are data protection? So again, it goes back to your initial point. ESG is a throwaway term that actually just means how you integrate sustainability and run good business across the board. It's not a siloed process. You have a number of stakeholders who are looking at your business now and judging it on how you run holistically your business and your purpose in the world. And these non-financial related measures of success are increasingly important for two reasons. Your customers expect them of you and your employees will not work with you, particularly the younger ones that are more socially conscious. In terms of turning to you, Mary, in terms of how this is driven from a policy point of view that gets us to this regulation, this taxonomy. Is this what governments are seeing as a risk management tool to protect the economy and the, the financial markets? What is driving politicians in the current environment to, to focus on this? So where government comes from, it's about looking at what business is doing and are they doing the right thing? You know, are we building a trusted environment for people to do business with us um, around the world? And I think the whole issue of how important it is for us to get that governance right, to get that scrutiny right, to show that we are transparent and open about the way that we do things so that you build that trusted environment. And governments, on the whole, it's about trying to help business do business better and be trusted and respected for that. But so I think there is also a public pressure in this um, about doing the right thing, about the contribution you make to not just yourself, um, because business in the city got quite a bad name for whether it was fat cats or you know, certainly the remuneration front. Um, as a financial crisis happened, um, there was lots of the blame culture around it. Um, and I think business has to rebuild that trust with society again. You need to be putting much more your I think, action rather than just words on a page. So what are you actually doing? Are you leading this debate? Are you leading the charge in it? Are you showing you really care about it? Or is it just something you have to do? So a lot of this, I think, comes from leaders of organisations. And then, of course, if they don't do the right thing, 
then government will step in in some way. Now, whether that is carrot or stick, whether it's something that they're saying, let's try and change the culture um, within within business and try it on a voluntary basis um, or give incentives, or whether we have to legislate. There's certainly things where I think the regulator and government have to step in, sometimes just to encourage. And that's always my preference is how can we allow business leaders do the right thing but are we actually fundamentally changing the processes the culture of the organization but it has to to start from the top and that's where I'm cautiously optimistic because the rhetoric I'm hearing from the top is that they really believe that something has to be done and that's the right thing in terms of whether it's the environment we live in the community we live in and the impact we make to the wider environment or what we're doing in terms of the governance side and and leadership and making sure that we're responding to being to doing good business and I think long term that is what builds the reputation of the city that's what builds the reputation of London and and beyond but it says that we should be leading in this there's lots of opportunities where we can say as the UK let's lead and shape this debate rather than being pushed into it by government and regulators. Chris can I just just jump on the the point of governments we have an opportunity through ESG actually banking and asset management to reset the die to actually say okay we are not purely profit centres we will actually work more on financial literacy. We will make or, or try to have people understand our reason for existing. We want to make profits, but we also want to look after your long-term saving needs. We want to gravitate capital towards sustainable business and ecosystems. So there's an opportunity here. We need to work hard on having people understand the the purpose of the industry. So again, reputational management of our industry is really important. Mary, one thing I'd like to come back to on the the S&G, we talk about COP26 and environment and and the government clearly has a position on this. And also it's instrumental perhaps in aligning itself with Biden, as well as being in line with legislature around environment. How does a government persuade society that these non-financial measures uh, require attention? Black Lives Matter was clearly a massive thing over the summer. But I don't see that working its way yet into discussion. And maybe that brings us into the Brexit piece. Is that a chance for regulatory divergence in a positive manner? Because often at the moment, the debate is around will the UK diverge from the EU standard, given that because of the leadership on environment, EU is seen as a benchmark, but not necessarily on social and governance issues, which maybe the UK is or isn't up for debate a more liberal society. Um, and in a way, I'm glad that the COP26 is in Glasgow this year because it's the UK taking a, a leading role in it. I think the government's made really strong uh, comments around net zero. You're right in saying that there's a lot of focus around the E. Um, and I think all the more reason for us to keep talking about the SNG as part of this. Now, behind the scenes, there is definitely talk about corporate governance and the S2. And that's why, when, for example, in the Women's Business Council, we were talking about the gender pay gap. Um, there's a whole range of those issues about how we do business and and how we operate within the environment that we live and work in. And that's why, for example, I set up the women's charters and they were backed by government. The first one was set up in in Women in Finance Charter. And we've done since Women in Aviation and Aerospace and Defence and there's a whole range of them. And companies, the large and small and the supply chain are flocking to 
sign those because they want to, they want to be seen because they believe in those things. And, and I think often the simpler you make those things, the better, because then you get a lot more people feeling that they can get behind the, the things they're signing up to and doing something about. But that was done with, yes, government support, but it was the industry leading it and the government were very clear about it. It wasn't that they wanted to demand it. It was they wanted this creative by the industry, for the industry, and um, for the business leaders to drive it. And that's what's happened in, in, in every single case um, with them. So I think it may not get much airtime, the S&G, but it's still very much part of the debate. And certainly at government business council meetings, it is absolutely on the agenda. And certainly Black Lives Matter, a, a, what's next on gender pay gap, um, a, how much more do you need more reporting? Is it, you know, how, how do you change those things? And I think what government doesn't want to do is make it difficult for organizations especially perhaps some of the smaller ones because it's easy for a big corporate to have the resource to to do some of those things but you want to make it fair for for the smaller firms too um but at the end of the day it's about creating better outcomes so because government does in, in a way represent the public but it's also has an accountability for the economy um, and therefore that's where it has to work hand in hand with the city with business generally with industry around the globe because we want to create that strong foundation to our economy and therefore that is what government is trying to do by working hand in hand with business and because if you want to change the outcomes you've got to be in there as part of the debate trying to drive it through and that's why I think a lot of the time it's industry leaders coming together to say what are the one or two things that we need government to do to help us get to these outcomes so we've seen the changes certainly in the the, the boardrooms um, where we are absolutely in the headhunting world asked for diverse long list short lists um, you're seeing business leaders coming up with the net zero commitments um, and so th- there's definitely a move in in the right direction and I think we've just need to keep this on the agenda by us talking about it and putting that pressure on so that we actually get to the outcomes that we want and need and we think are right for us as businesses for our clients and also for the society at large. One of the subsets as Mary will not like of G is the concept of short-termism to long-termism and I think businesses are starting to recognize that so again to go to the importance of the G having longer term view is really important and we're starting to see businesses who take that longer term view again this is optimism with caution sometimes I get quite cynical or even angry that change doesn't happen quick enough but because that's because I'm not looking at a long enough horizon and then just Brexit or post-Brexit centric. So the arms of the UK government and policymakers, so Bank of England, um, the FCA, HMRC, they've already had a lot more autonomy to engage with business and industry advocates. And they're already reshaping, even in my space, like the fund space, the tax neutrality of funds to make UK more attractive. Bank of England looking at things like stablecoin and cryptocurrency outside the strictures of the EU. So again, if you actually think of the Brexit opportunity, I think that engagement between um, the political wing and the business wing has a lot more autonomy to move faster, and it could be a competitive advantage. But with more autonomy, and again, with the talent pool and the diverse talent pool, the city specifically, but the UK has huge opportunity as we go forward, as you look in the long term. And I do think we want to be the best 
at, at what we're doing. We want to you know, be shaping and leading the world in, in the debate. Um, it's rather than just being pushed into to doing things by governments. And one leader can't necessarily do it on their own, but collectively, I mean, the power of that. And I think that's where, yes, there's been really challenging times for a lot of sectors, for businesses, for SMEs, for people losing jobs. So you get the inspirational stories, like those ventilators, vaccines, handles, the whole range of things and communities coming out to help one another at a time of need and that's where you get your faith returned in terms of human nature so to me this whole ESG debate and especially the SNG is this is about public demand the thing is if, if business leaders don't grab it and do something with it and show that they care um, and that they can drive change then society has a habit, and like Black Lives Matter, of doing something. I really want to see business grabbing this. This is where the wealth management industry absolutely can look at whether it's financial inclusion. There's so many issues, especially in the climate we're in right now, that they can say, let's work together to make a real difference to those across all communities, um, whether it's levelling up, whether it's um, social mobility. There's a whole range of things that say, let's fundamentally deliver on and speed up and turn up that dial, shift the dial for driving real change where we allow everyone to succeed, achieve their potential, dream what they want to be and, and do. And that's where real innovation will come. That's where growth will come. And I think there's the opportunity to do that now. Yeah, and, then, and again, a litmus test will be post-pandemic. Will we collectively keep our promise that society has now changed for the better um, as a result of this? Again, mental well-being is a huge focus of, of entities at the moment. Will that dissipate or will it maintain? Fingers crossed it stays. They need to hold that promise for the long term, not just the short again it's what leadership do we need right now in organizations and this year was a perfect example we knew that we were living in uncertain times and this year has just shown how something can come left field almost and dramatically change um, the way we operate the way we think and um, the way organizations work and therefore are we being adaptable to all of that how quickly can we adapt to that how do we um, anticipate some of that therefore who are the leaders that are right for today and the years ahead because I think this pace of change will just continue and we've got to be able to flex to, to deal with all of that um, and that's where I think if the wealth and asset management industry are constantly at the forefront of leading the charge on some of those things where they say yes we collectively are going to, to do something and then of course it's not just business leaders and organizations if i think it does start at the top but it's also every single individual one of us in terms of what we're doing absolutely as adrian said we need to shout about what we're doing and be a voice you look at malala who you know stood up to the taliban in pakistan because she was determined to get an education shot to the head or you look at captain sir tom who inspired a nation age 99 and raised 39 million for NHS charities together. So we all have a voice and we're even more fortunate in that we're in positions of power or leadership or in organisations that we can absolutely drive change and lead the charge. I just think it's you talk about the changes, if the WAM industry, the people, our listeners, sit here and think that's great, but the change isn't happening what do you think the consequences of no change are? I mean, will Silicon Valley come in and, and offer an alternative? Or? There'll be challengers. Someone yeah. else will come in um, and successfully challenge in the status quo. 
and they will do really well. I don't know what speed it will happen, but I certainly think there's a move for this and I don't think that's going away. So therefore, current players either need to take that to do something with it and drive it and, and create the right thing, or if not, they will be left behind. Change does, doesn't just happen, right? It needs to, again, to the examples that Mary gave, you need to make a difference, but you need to plan for it and execute on it. It's a business strategy to integrate this into your business for better outcomes, both non-financial and financial. Um, and it's not a right-on social movement. It is better business practice. So it has to be seen not as a short-term marketing campaign. It has to be an integrated business process that ensures your sustainability. And again, that's why the concept of stakeholder capitalism is increasing because, again, without being repetitive, your employees and access to talent is predicated upon it. The sustainability, viability, and profitability of your business over the longer term demands this change. And you will be disrupted, absolutely, um, if you don't get on board. If you're asleep at the wheel as a leader of a firm who hasn't truly planned how you're going to incorporate the EDS and the G into your business, whatever that business is. Your long-term future, I don't think, looks very bright. And to put the cat among the pigeons here in terms of, I think the environmental question is globally accepted, even if everyone's moving at different paces. But it's the S and G, even if we recognise it as important, on a global stage, is that something that is, is universally accepted? I mean, I know you've got links with Asia, Adrian, is that a different type of society where the customer and the individual is perhaps valued differently as in the context of conforming and the good of society as a whole is perhaps valued more than individuals, which is not saying one is right or wrong, but it certainly means that there may be less priority put towards the S&G in different, different cultures. We talk about racial diversity and gender equality a lot in our industry. But again, we're sometimes in a little bubble. We're talking about the UK, Ireland or, or, or America or even Europe. In, in Tokyo, for example, there isn't a lot of non-nationals that live there. So your ability to be extremely diverse is limited. So people need to understand those limitations. And the other thing is that data is important and evidence. So not qualitative opinion, but quantitative facts. The facts are starting to build, but the case for profitability directly related to diversity is scant, if honest. It's still, it's building. Um, People have a sense that it is important, but the the hard data is not fully there yet. And again, the EU rules without going, they are trying to put a quantitative element to this that will start to show that there are performance benefits to incorporating these things. So I think it's a hugely nuanced topic that needs to be understood, needs to be backed all the time by science and data. We're at, at the early evolution stage. Um, as that data set grows, I believe that it will actually see that if you access more diverse thinking um, and talent pools, that you will outperform over the longer term. We do need to have that data in the business case. Um, and in some part, but it, it is slightly scant. So certainly on diversity in the boardroom, there's a solid business case. I think there's a bit around business performance. It doesn't deliver outcome the business performance. And I'd argue it does, um, given the things we talked earlier about, whether it's internal, external pressures um, and being competitive. And there's also the thing about being seen as an industry to be doing the right thing and encouraging inclusion and other 
players. We want the best talent in, in the world. And, and therefore, making sure that we are seen as being open, transparent, and that governance is the best in the world for us to do business and, and, and lead the world. So there's certainly things like that, but you do need the data and the and the metrics behind it. So I, I keep encouraging the data to be gathered for the measures to, to be aligned globally. There'll be people that we be persuaded anyway, because they think it is right and proper and they can build their organization stronger through it. They can do what the clients are and the public are, 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 are requesting. But at the same time, you have to also build that business case over time, have the examples where it convinces those who are perhaps less convinced um, to say that this is an imperative. And, and I do fundamentally believe that if that if people don't grab it and deal with it and do something with it, that other competitors will come in and they will get ahead. And so it will be part of the business case that's saying you've got to be competitive. You have to have this as part of your agenda. It's about purpose and, and impact. And none of us work in silos as an organization. We're collaborating and working with organizations around the world. Um, we work across sectors. You can't get away from that. This is about people, their money, their future, what you're investing in, in for the future. And the more transparency there is around that, so that people really understand where their money has been invested and what that is delivering on that ESG, the, I, I think will, will create a much more engaged public um, that feel that they can actually shape and change the world too. Just, just one point on that, Chris, again, on diversity specifically, there's some yeah. companies who look at self-analyze at the moment and they see that their metrics perhaps aren't great. So they kind of don't engage with the topic because we're going to look bad. Actually, that's a better starting point. You just need to have a coherent plan again and long term and start building. It's okay. It is what it is or you are where you are. But if you have not great metrics and no plan, that's an asteroid coming for you. You need to um, embrace rather than uh, run away from the issue. Well, that'll bring me nicely to my summary, really, which is starting with that data point. As with any good business, you need data to run it and effect change or, or find out where the problem is. So I think you're absolutely spot on to finish off with data being key. And as you said, it's a long-term view agent and you need that data to plan for that long-term view and not expect immediate change even if we're all very passionate about this as a topic. And over the long term, Mary, we need to build trust. It's a trusted environment to the everyday person in terms of investment banking compared to asset management. You're looking after people's future prosperity. And then finally, bringing that back to, I think, the point you made at the top of the podcast, Ojin, it's about customers and employers and this integrates with their desires over the environment. And if we don't do it, as you said, Mary, someone else is going to come in and do it for us. So I think that's about three or four points in there. They stand out from this discussion. So um, wonderful. Thank you for that. I think we could probably go on for another couple of hours. But <laughs> it does sound like it. <laughs> fantastic. But I'm going to bring you back to a question about your uh, working practices that changed or something that you, in your, your work life, that you look back and think, oh, how on earth did that used to happen? So while you're thinking about that, maybe, Mary, have you got anything? Surely something with the Queen. I must say, you know, I'm... Even up until recently, I was printing so much paper and I have completely changed now. And I think lockdown has helped a bit. So from someone who I started my career programming in COBOL um, and building systems, uh, I still I knew and loved the technology, but I still felt I needed, maybe it was from having studied literature. I mean, I needed to feel the book, I needed to feel the paper. Whereas I've actually completely uh, changed now and I just need to have enough screens that I can see several things at the one time. But I'm so glad that 
that we've changed in, in, in that regard because it's, I used to on my desk at work would have stacks of, stacks of paper. Um, yes. Thankfully now it's very empty. Had a paperless pandemic. Yes. Yeah, Chris, I, I, I do have another one. Like, again, this is indicative. We're, we're on Zoom here. Like, when I started my career, a big meeting would happen absolutely in person. And sometimes it would happen in London and you'd have US colleagues, even Asian colleagues, uh, continental Europeans would fly in to the city and then we'd go to an office and we'd sit around a table. But Zoom and the pandemic and the lockdown has just meant it, it literally doesn't matter where the person you're talking to is. So we regularly host calls with America, Ireland, UK, France, Luxembourg, Zurich, Hong Kong. Beijing on the same call. And to me, the connectivity that technology has brought in the last few years is just literally mind-blowing when and if you can cast your mind back to how it used to be done. And again, I think there's components of that won't ever go back. I think that connectivity through technology is here to stay. And it's a huge shift and it's a huge benefit. Because if I'm honest, one of the major downsides of the role that I had on being a having a global role was the business travel was grueling and took you away from your family. If that lessens again for the longer term, I'll be absolutely delighted. I think, well, particularly around the, the business attire, I know my, my trips to work, if I have to wear a suit and the London commute on a train, I now feel like the odd one out. It's amazing. Something you never would have thought of uh, 10, 15 years ago. I have a tuxedo in, in, in the other room. I wonder if it'll ever be worn again, maybe to dress up as James Bond or something on, on, on Halloween. It all, fashion always comes back. Okay. Thank you so much both for taking your time out. And, Appreciate it. Thank you. To our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and what has been a, a positive discussion on the outlook for ESG and particularly on social and governance factors and hopefully something you can take back uh, to your workplace in 2021. We look forward to grabbing another cup of coffee with Algamy Consulting with you all in the next in our series of podcasts on the theme of optimism with caution in the wealth and asset management industry. If you want to discuss this podcast further with us or have any questions or would even like to take part in our series Optimism with Caution, you can contact us through info at algamy-consulting.com or via LinkedIn Algamy Consulting.